you got to smooth this out. This already sucks. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that serves up the complicated meanings behind some of history's favorite songs. Oh, we switched to complicated. Well, because today is complicated. It's quite complicated. (laughs) Hi. Hi, that's Aviv. He was really fucked up my intro now. Well, you're welcome, everyone. I'm your host, journalist, and former music writer, Lindsay Tucker, and I'm joined today, as always, by... Aviv Rubenstein, that's me. I'm a writer and filmmaker and musician and music lover and host of this podcast and other podcasts. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you? How are you doing, Lindsay? I'm great. My dad's in town. We're doing a lot of landscaping. So um, what a day. Yeah. What a day. What a day for you and your family. Yeah. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. I just did. Um, I feel like I feel like there was a pause there. I'm good. I am, you know, living my life, trying not to be anxious about things. The usual. Uh, excited to talk about today's song. However, we have, before we get into it, we have a little bit of listener reviews and feedback and a funny story that we got DM to us on Instagram. And so we're going to read, we're going to take a little trip to user review corner here. Would you like me to read the first one from Susan Forlian? I would love that. This is from Susan Forlian, which I didn't realize was likely a fake name until Lindsay told me it's probably a play on susan orlean who wrote the orchid thief um perfect combination perfect combo of salty and sweet love um, this first show. of all first of all perfect combination of salty and sweet that is from i don't know what is it you don't know crazy stupid love tell her she's I, a perfect combination of wait 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 do you think that the term salty and sweet <laughs> is from the 2011 that no one had ever said a combo of salty no, and sweet. No, no. And it's before. not even, those aren't even the exact words. It's like, tell her she's the perfect combination of sexy and cute. Wait, I so, think you are, so you literally are just making stuff up. <laughs> completely making stuff up is what you're telling me. I mean, in my head, it was a, a nod. <laughs> Susan, I guess I have to ask you, were you (laughs) referencing the 2011 romantic classic that I saw in Guatemala, Crazy Stupid Love? Okay. Uh, Continue. I'm going to start over. Quote, love the show. It's legit the perfect snack, as the hosts say, both fun and relevant, calling out the dark side of the entertainment industry in some cases. Just wait. Combines fun gossip and wild theories about the true meanings behind songs you know but aren't sure you how you know and brings up important social issues. Thank you. I wonder which one of us is salty and which one of us is sweet. Mm, I think um, I'm the perfect combination of salty and sweet, and I, you're just there. I, th- I was going to say that you're just all salty. <laughs> oh, thanks. We also have a review from the Core Extra podcast, Friends of the Show. They're awesome. Definitely check them out, too. This show is a must for music lovers. A must. Hosts Lindsay and Aviv break down lyrics of iconic songs while injecting an infectious chemistry that makes you wish each episode went on for hours. Infectious. Well, guess what? 
Guess what, Core Extra? <laughs> now they do. Yeah, now they do. The deep research and obvious passion for music makes the show informative, entertaining, and subscription worthy. I actually learned a few things about some songs that will make me listen to them differently from now on. Great, great show. Well, Thank you so much, Core Extra. Hold on to your butts for today. <laughs> um, and we also, okay, so we got this. We have a we message got, from Mallory. We got, okay. I, I prefaced this by saying that Lindsay has only read ha- about half of this to me. And I was like, no, we must <laughs> save it for live on air because it, it is. It, it, okay. So okay. What does is, what is Mallory have to say? This is from Mallory in Asheville. Hi, Mallory. Hi, Mal. Mike, my husband, was in a band when we lived in Charleston called the Hibachi Heroes. The lead singer was Rob Lowe. He's Asian and calls himself Asian Rob Lowe. He's okay, a huge- already. Wait. <laughs> so not the Rob Lowe, just a guy named Rob Lowe that happens to be Asian. Yes. All right. He's named himself ALR. ALR. Asian. Wait. ARL. ARL. I'm not dyslexic, I swear. <laughs> all the, just firing on all cylinders already today. Okay, so ARL. Was a huge blues traveler fan, and he somehow became friends with John Popper and would sit in with the band and play the harmonica. He was really good at it. Mike originally told me he became friends with John Popper because he challenged him to a harmonica off, but Mike doesn't recall that story, so maybe I just made it up. Same with the salty and sweet thing. People are just making shit up all over the, all over the town today. <laughs> So right after we moved to Asheville, Blues Traveler played in Charleston and the Hibachi Heroes opened for them. And Mike was low-key pissed that he missed that. So when they played in Asheville, Rob Lowe came and he gave Mike two ticks to go with him to see Blues Traveler. Rob has like this lifetime Blues Traveler concert pass. Because of the harmonica off that didn't actually happen. <laughs> yeah. Once you do a harmonica off, you're bros Bonded for life, for life yeah. Yeah. I, Mallory, decided to stay home because I had to work the next day, but Mike and his bandmate went. And long story short, they ended up backstage and on the tour bus after with John Popper, and he said it was wild. First thing John Popper asked is if they have cocaine. So his friend was determined to find John Popper cocaine. He made some calls, and John Popper gave him and the drug dealer a harmonica. (laughs) Uh, How fucking... What a weirdo. In return for the coke. Like, uh, like along no with money, money, just harmonica. I bequeath Unclear. to you this this John Popper harmonica from me, John Popper. <laughs> Thanks for the drugs. Here's a harmonica from my back pocket. And then Mike was so paranoid, John Popper was going to die from cocaine and his friend would be responsible. He must have been high or something. Or something. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a good story. Uh, that is a good story. Uh, I so, find the so, most interesting part that John Popper thinks he can pay for his drugs with harmonicas. harmonicas. So in other John Popper news, basically like the day after we released our Hook episode, they re-released Hook. So there's this thing called like Hook 2.0 or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Blues Traveler re-released their two biggest hits, which are Hook and Runaround 2.0. And this is from their website. Quote, hey friends, it's been a while. Though 2020 sidelined a lot of our plans, the band was able to get together in Nashville and spend some time in the studio. If you're following us on social media, you may have seen some studio photos popping up today a taste of what went down in the studio is available for you to check out with a special re-recording of hook and runaround which we dubbed runaround 2.0 and hook 2.0 these versions sound a lot closer to the way you hear them when we play live give them a spin wherever you stream your music so i gave it a spin tell us uh you ever hear 
those versions of songs that's like, oh my God, we have this amazing, you know, the Strokes went into the AOL studios and did like a quasi live, quasi studio version of the song that's like. Like iTunes sessions. Yeah, yeah, like iTunes sessions or AOL sessions. It's that. It's fine. It's very slightly different. But like Lindsay and I off mic were discussing why, why, why would they do this? And I, I think the only answer is he was feeling stuck and needed a buck. He didn't rely on luck because the the hook hook brought him back. It brings us back. It brought us all back. It brought us all back. And he's given us the runaround. He's but anyway, (laughs) which is the other song that they released. But anyway, 2.0. But anyway, um, what are we talking about today? Today's main event, the NWA track, Fuck the Police. Yes, the 1988 anti-cop anthem that has sadly withstood the test of time. Tell me, tell me more. I was going to ask you, what do you know about NWA? And if you don't know anything, I will tell you everything I know. Okay, so I know that they are from Compton, as I learned in the song Straight Out of Compton. Um, and it was just a group of f- now very famous rappers, including Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, Easy E, who died of HIV, and a few others. I don't think Snoop Dogg was a member of NWA, but it's like tough to tough to keep it all straight because they're all from like around no Southern California. Yeah. yeah, and and Dre and Snoop Dogg collaborated, but uh, NWA and Specifically, Fuck the Police reminds me of a, a history class that I took in college at Boston University. There was a, a very coveted history class to get into called Modern History, 1968 to Present. And the professor, whose name escapes me, kind of talked like this, like like David Lynch. He was kind of my first, quote unquote, deconstructing the white narrative professor. Yeah, yeah. He did a pretty good job. Um, and he was talking about the L.A. riots and or so something, some civil unrest in L.A. And I remember him saying specifically, and no anthem better sums up the African-American experience in Los Angeles than N.W.A.'s Fuck the Police. And then he played Fuck the Police for us. Great. I agree with him. I mean, my research agrees with him. This isn't for me to, to agree or disagree, but the research backs up his expression. Yeah, so I have a kind of a tertiary understanding of how the song fits into the culture, and I've heard the song before. NWA was formed in 1986 by Eazy-E, uh, so that's Eric Wright, and the group consisted of Arabian Prince, also known as Professor X, Dr. Dre, and Ice Cube, which is O'Shea Jackson. I've never heard of Arabian Prince, a.k.a. Professor X, but I fucking love his name, his rap names. (laughs) The group is widely considered one of the most influential groups in the history of hip-hop, pioneering and driving forward what would become known as gangster rap, which is what the group called at the time reality rap. Interesting. So what exactly is reality rap? So the group considered themselves... Journalists, reporters of street culture, and the African-American experience. I've heard on numerous occasions people referring to hip-hop as hood CNN. So Fuck the Police originally appeared on NWA's debut studio album, Straight Outta Compton, which was released on August 8th, 1988, by Eazy-E's Ruthless Records. So Eazy-E started Ruthless with money that he made selling drugs, and... 
at its peak, Ruthless was the number one independent label in the industry and the largest Black-owned indie since Barry Gordy's legendary Motown Records empire. Right. A white people stealing Black music since 1619. Yeah. The album saw loads of backlash from media, political pundits, and just general public who feigned outrage at its profanity and violent lyrics. Won't someone think of the children? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think we can assume that much of that was fueled by racism and prejudice against hip-hop music. So can we can we unpack that for a second? So I actually seem to remember a little bit of the gangster rap panic. I, I came, I mean, I was born in 1985, so I had maybe the second wave of that. But mm-hmm. like, gangster rap supposedly was inciting violence among kids in the inner cities, inner cities is code for black, and in the suburbs, which is code for white. By who? For, by the people who are saying this nonsense. Okay. Right? The, so, like, the, the, the moral majority, the Christian right, even, like, people like my parents who would consider themselves relatively liberal, like, wouldn't want me listening to, quote-unquote, black music, which is music about the black experience, which they thought may have, like... I don't know, like seduced me over into being violent and selling <laughs> drugs and abusing women or or I don't know. But I think a lot of that is, like you said, a bad faith argument that is fueled just by people afraid of a a black thing being popular with white kids. Right. And I think that there is a mindset of them wanting to preserve what they would consider white culture and not wanting it to be, quote unquote, polluted by culture from other races and other cultures. They did the same thing with rock and roll, right? Rock and roll was the devil's music because black people played it and it made you shake your hips until Elvis stole it all. (sighs) And then it was fine. And then it was fine. Yeah, I think there's also a level of not wanting to validate the black experience because the reality is that gang violence and a racist drug war define los angeles in the late 80s and early 90s so this decade is often referred to as the decade of death well 1988 to 1998 in los angeles is referred to as the decade of death and it was marked by record homicide rates and violence i never put that together that like appreciating the art of the thing would somehow validate the inequality that they're talking about right yeah which makes total sense Many of the historical accounts that I read credit NWA's honest portrayal of the atrocities facing the black community with what led to their widespread popularity, despite there was basically no media buy-in and no radio play. Street Outta Compton's video was banned from MTV, and the songs were not played on the radio. Well, okay. So how did, how did, they, how did it spread? Easy e and some others would distribute tapes on the street. And Mm -hmm. it really spread through word of mouth. And there was a bit of shock expressed at one of their earlier concerts when everyone in the crowd knew the words. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might have even been their first, the Skateland. Skateland was one of their first concerts. I think it was their first concert. And they were even surprised how everyone in the crowd knew their songs. The actual first record that, that they put out is called NWA and the Posse. Mm-hmm. And that features some other artists, including DOC, who mm-hmm. is another um, known associate of NWA, who wrote a bunch of their songs with them and was kind of always in the studio with Dre and, uh, and some other artists. So they put out NWA and the Posse on Ruthless Records. And then their debut album, Straight Out of Compton, which was, you know, just their group, came out in 88. Hip hop in the mid 80s was not 
I did just a quick Google of like hip hop in 85, 86, 87. And we have songs like King of Rock by Run DMC, right? On the King of Rock, there is none higher. Uh, the Fat Boys. Do you remember the Fat Boys? I don't know. The Fat Boys were just like a, f- a three fat guys that sang about being fat. Okay. <laughs> And they can never be whack. And they're eating pizza. Yeah, on the record cover, they're eating pizza. I'm obsessed with this. They're standing on all of these crunched up pizza boxes. So this is like, like, they were like the weird owl of rap, right? They would just only sing about food and how fat they are. And so those are not what NWA sounds like, right? It, it is It is kind of a more sanitized hip-hop oh for sure than we would expect the beastie boys put out their first album in 86 in 87 we have dj jazzy jeff and the fresh prince but we also are starting to have people like public enemy and ice t and so the the tide is turning right grandmaster flash is still doing stuff he's the one that's like don't push me because i'm close to the edge oh yeah uh uh-huh of course just quickly getting back to um, Straight Out of Compton and getting banned. And Easy e always said that bad press is good press. And so people were buying up the album because they wanted to know what's on it. So it. the the album initially reached number 37 on U.S. Billboard Top 200. And it has since reached number four. And it sold more than 1.5 million copies in the U.S. alone. Wow. Um, so this is from journalist and author Garrick D. Kennedy's December 2017 book, which is called Parental Discretion is Advised, The Rise of NWA and the Dawn of Gangster Rap. Okay. The emergence of NWA, who built itself as the world's most dangerous group in the late 80s, provided a jolt to the rap industry. Public Enemy had already helped redefine the genre by ushering in aggressively pro-black raps that were intelligent, socially aware, and politically charged. But NWA opted for an angrier approach. The group celebrated the hedonism and violence of gangs and drugs that turned neighborhoods into war zones, capturing it in brazen language soaked in explicitness. Street reporters is what they called themselves, and their dispatches were raw and unhinged, no matter how ugly the stories were. Like the Beatles, NWA's lineup was stacked with all-stars. Eazy-E, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, MC Ren would become platinum-selling solo rappers, while DJ Yella helped Dre break ground on a new sound in hip-hop. They were the living embodiment of the streets where they were raised, and there was zero pretense about it. And when it came to subject matter, with NWA, politics took a backseat. Instead, frustrations about growing up young and black on the streets of South Central Los Angeles became the driving force behind their music. How is that not political, though? I had the same thought. So there's, he's saying it took a backseat. I mean, he's not saying it has no seat, but... But those things are political, in my opinion. Yeah, they were the the reporters, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. So he goes on: gangs, violence, poverty, and the ravishing '80s crack epidemic swept through black neighborhoods like F five tornadoes. People were angry and restless, and without a flinch, NWA documented its dark and grim realities like urban newsmen. Straight Outta Compton was a flashpoint that spoke for a disenfranchised community and disrupted the order of those who were confronted with the voices and images of a community they'd much rather ignore. Black teens and young adults immersed in street life, yet looking for something to hold on to, flocked to the album. And so did white suburban middle-class teens who knew nothing about the hood or a life inside it, but looked to rap as an outlet for a rebellion in the same way their parents gravitated toward the angsty countercultural attitudes percolating in rock music during the 1960s. 
As unapologetically violent, misogynist, and problematic as their lyrics often were, the group's harrowing depictions of urban nightmares provided a vital response to the growing disenfranchisement of the Reagan-era politics that had transformed the nation and created an economic catastrophe for metropolitan L.A. N.W.A. introduced an anti-hero, the way Melvin Van Peebles' groundbreaking 19- <laughs> Did I say it wrong? No, I just know <laughs> what you're talking about. Sweet okay. Tupac's badass song. Yeah, the way Marlon Van Peebles' groundbreaking 1971 film Sweet Sweetback's badass song used America's longstanding perception of black men as seething, violent hunks to politicize the image. NWA brought it to life by mixing reality with fantasy through its music, and the result was as terrifying as it was successful. We're trying to see how far we could push the envelope, said Dre. They continued to push, crafting startling, vivid tales of inner city life, from streets ravished by gang warfare and crack, to beef with police, liquor store holdups, bank robberies, drive-by shootings. The nightmares of urban life were brought to reality. Their words were piercing, the beats were menacing, and the message clear. We don't give a fuck. As Kennedy points out, some of the group's lyrics and messaging are deeply problematic in ways that include but aren't limited to misogyny, homophobia, and child rape. Um, So I did want to address this. So group members, like so many of our quote unquote musical heroes, have committed serious crimes against women. They have complicated histories. Dr. Dre has a terrifying history of abusing women. Uh, including the brutal assault of TV host Dee Barnes, who was hospitalized after Dre grabbed her by the hair and repeatedly slammed her head and body into a brick wall at an industry party in 1991. But I didn't see that in the biopic. That was not there. Um, And they've been criticized for not including that in the film because... Well, Dre produced the film, so he's absolutely not going to do that. Well, he did talk about it on The Defiant Ones, which is an HBO docuseries that I'm going to talk about in a a little bit later. Okay. And in the do- in that docu series, he said, you know, there's absolutely no excuse for putting a hand on woman, and he deeply apologized for it and recalled the incident. So I do think it's interesting that maybe it was because of so many people were so infuriated that it was left out of the film that he decided to address it yeah, in maybe. the Defiant Ones. It's it's just interesting because I think that that the that the kind of machismo that they are presenting themselves with on the record about having to do drive-bys and sell drugs and all like that draws a straight line to the toxic masculinity that they, that they approach, you know, women with. Absolutely. And it doesn't lessen their personal struggle. No, it doesn't. And, um, don't have heroes, kids. Analyzing the systems that are already in place that are, that are white supremacist systems and how they have fueled so many other, atrocities including violence against women you know and so when you look at the way um if you look at the whole picture of what it was like growing up in la in a black body at this time and and what they were going through it's not to excuse some of the language and the behavior and but it's it's also like you can't blame the messenger you have to look at at some of the the systems that were in place that that caused that were actually the cause. Hundred thousand million percent, right? Because the people that we're talking about, basically everyone that you've ever met in your entire life is a part of a system that has equipped them to view the world in a certain way and treat people poorly sometimes. And they should be held accountable for that. But you can't just play whack-a-mole with the people that do bad things. You have to 
you have to change the system that's creating these bad people. Also, I want to I want to note that we did a Beatles episode last week and we didn't or we did a Wings episode, which is why we didn't really talk about John Lennon that much and how horrible, horribly yeah. abusive he was to women. So we're not we're not saying this just because they're rappers or a different genre of music. Like so many men who get a little bit of power in any industry immediately use that power to abuse people with less power than they have which is usually women and so like i don't what the fuck man yeah i mean it's all part of patriarchal attitudes and aggressions and who does it serve you know and it it does serve people who are in power and that's why it continues to be perpetuated and and it trickles down to people who aren't in power can't wait to get some emails telling me how cucked i am (laughs) how beta non-red pilled i am if that happens we'll have a great mailbag yeah we'll have a good mailbag (laughs) so the interesting thing about sweet sweetback's badass song and and its comparison to Straight Outta Compton is Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song is also horribly misogynistic and also abused a child. So uh, Melvin Van Peebles, who directed the movie and stars in it, had unsimulated sex with a woman in the movie in front of his like nine-year-old son, Mario Van Peebles. Oh, my God. And, yeah, it's super fucked up. And then Mario Van Peebles grows up, becomes an actor, and acts as his own father in the biopic about Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Interesting. Yeah, it's I mean, super fucking weird. It is weird. Also, though, not to get too tangential, I think that the way, I guess, our society sort of makes sex shameful and hides it from children is super fucked up. And so, like, in a normal, healthy existence, like, it might be okay for children to see sex, but maybe it's not just on not camera the world in we're this living context. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The first time you learn about sex is in a movie that you are also in. And seeing your dad. Yeah. I mean, uh, it just, yeah. it, it gives me bad feelings, but I don't it's, know if that's because I'm a product of the society I was oh, raised that's in. A good, good point. It's, it's yeah. squicky for sure. <laughs> okay. So let's listen to the song. Yes, let's. Right about now, NWA court is in full effect. Judge Gray residing. In the case of NWA versus the police department, prosecuting attorneys all. Very interesting. 
So the groove is funkier than I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it I mean it it I have it I have trouble seeing how parents found the the musicality of this so menacing because like he's playing the twilight zone theme right now <laughs> it's just like a funky groove and he's like very clearly upset at the injustice that he's faced well i think it's also there's the direct line from the the rap music that you were referencing whether that be like the the fat boys, fat boys or, yeah. or run dmc yeah or dj jazzy jeff you know that that was kind of the style then. Yeah, so this is a little bit more aggressive than that. I also just looked up because we were talking about Arabian Prince, and I was like, he's not in the movie, he's not in anything that I've read. So I just wanted to like find out a little bit more about him. Um, he was a founding member, but he left the group in 1988, right when Straight Outta Compton was released. Oh, interesting. So he specifically said that he wanted to shoot a cop, right? So I'm sure, I'm sure that they took that as as a freedom of speech issue that they would not get in the way of, and oh, yeah, they they were just rolling out the red carpet for freedom of speech. Yeah. I love Easy's voice. He's such. He's so nerdy. He's so nerdy. And apparently he Maybe couldn't rap for he shit. So much butt. Yeah, he could not rap for shit. They would have to do it like five times for him yeah. to get on beat. Five is five is nothing. Like fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's apparently one scene in the movie that they got completely accurately is that he just could not rap on time. This sounds like Spike Lee to me. I know. I, I love it. I think it's... I don't know. I like variations in voices, and this is not one that you hear very often in music. It's a dweeb. R.I.P. Easy. <laughs> you dweeb. Analysis. I just want to. I just want to read the first YouTube comment on this 
Yeah, let's hear it. It's from Cranky Stinkleton, and it's from 11 months ago. Cranky Stinkleton? Yeah, the Cranky Stinkleton. (laughs) And he says, Anonymous hacked the Chicago cop radios, and they're now playing this song on repeat. Yes, I hope that is true. I hope so, too. This was 11 months ago. Fucking amazing. So, Fuck the Police was one of the first songs the group put together in their early recording sessions. It was written in reaction to recurring police brutality within the Black communities. What did you think about it? I have heard it before, but for whatever reason, I never registered or only heard it start at Ice Cube's verse. So mm-hmm. the the setup that they do of like, we're putting black people on the stand in front of a judge to talk about their grievances with police. I'd never registered that before. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to me that they are that they are talking about their grievances with the justice quote-unquote justice system while still being within the justice being system, part of right? it yeah um so that is very interesting and but they put dre in the seat of power it's judge dre right right, right. it is judge dre and you know ice cube is not the world's greatest rapper um but i also I, his I, son played him in his biopic a clone <laughs> i know fucking clone at first i was like wow this casting was amazing <laughs> and then uh, I mm, o'shea up. jackson jr weird <laughs> yeah yeah but you know i like the song it's it's long it's Doesn't, long i don't know if it needs to be six minutes but it's pretty good so the lapd had long held a reputation for excessive force racial profiling and harassment in 1991 four months after the brutal beating of Rodney King by four Los Angeles police officers and nine months before their acquittal sparked five days of rioting in LA, an independent commission issued an indictment of the LAPD, finding that it, quote, tolerated excessive force and overt racism among its officers. The report found a significant number of officers repeatedly used excessive force against the public and persistently ignored the written guidelines of the department regarding force. Interesting fun fact about me. I live in LA. I have a close friend who works in like HR at a police department in LA. And I have asked her to Mm -hmm. come on this and other podcasts, which she refuses to do for obvious reasons, um, but has told me horror story beyond horror story of like the kind of systematic rot that there is inside of the police departments in los angeles to this very day yeah as of three months ago when i last saw her we she shared more stories with me Mm -hmm. yeah we'll get to we'll talk about sort of modern day more in a little bit i did want to touch upon the hbo docuseries that i mentioned earlier the defiant ones Mm -hmm. that tells the stories of dr dre and record exec jimmy iovine and how they became partners to start beats electronics and they came from very different backgrounds in the music industry do you know jimmy i've heard of jimmy Iovine. yeah okay so part two in the series deals with jimmy's work with tom petty stevie nicks and you too and simultaneously sort of tells the story of dre's journey with nwa in that episode you have world-class wrecking crews alonzo williams and ice cube recalling how fuck the place came to be alonzo williams says that they were quote the first black people to be into paintball <laughs> okay that's it does uh, uh, thinking about it now that does seem very white right 
It's pretty redneck, in my opinion. I've never tried paintball. I've never but... done paintball, but I know a lot of people in Pennsylvania, growing up in Pennsylvania, that like loved paintball. Yeah, and disc golf. All right, there's zero. There are currently zero black people who have ever played disc golf. <laughs> okay, so Easy bought a paintball shotgun. Great. And him and Dre were driving down the freeway, sticking the paintball shotgun out the window and shooting cars and freaking people out. <laughs> Okay, love love it. Very stupid. Go on. Um, so the police pulled them over and shook them down real good. I'm surprised they made it out alive, frankly. Uh, me too. Yeah. Because unfortunately, I hate that I have to be surprised, but uh, what we had Tamir Rice, a child with a fake gun, right? Well, I mean, we've had kids with candy bars. We've had kid, kids with nothing. Kids with cell I mean, phones. yes, yeah. 100%. I'm not even get, opening that can of worms, but but I'm just trying to make a direct comparison to yeah, one fake to one. guns. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is um, a little bit more menacing, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, so according to Ice Cube, Dre and Easy were running around and fucking up, and Dre had to check himself into jail on the weekends. <laughs> so I, I sent you a link to the Defiant Ones. Okay. So Dre had to check himself into jail every weekend. As a teenager, weekends with Dr. Dre, you in a club, you partying, the music is banging, you around hip hop, he go to jail, all that stopped. So our weekends was boring, bunk, we was back on the block, we was just not doing nothing. So I was just mad that all the fun stopped and Dre had to go to jail till Monday. So I wrote fuck the police, you know what I mean? Because it was like enough is enough. So this that's interesting is that it was a very kind of, I don't want to say narrow view, but like it was literally because the police are locking up his one friend who he likes to party with. That's how he retell, re, is retelling the story. Right. Now. Yeah. So, so maybe it isn't as political as I thought it was. L- let's say your friend going to jail gives you the idea to write the song, but then you write the song as a political statement, right? Sure. Uh, that totally makes sense. Um, so Dre didn't like the song at first. Uh, he had to go back to jail on Friday, and he said the song was going to get his ass whooped. Amazing. I mean, he's not wrong. Go on. <laughs> so um, Ice Cube says he crumpled it up and threw it away, but a friend pulled it out and said, like, nah, it's too good. Keep that in your notebook. And so he did. And then eventually he brought it to NWA, and DOC loved it, and the rest of the group was really excited about it. It's a, so and we, it's not even that Dre didn't like it. It's like, that's going to get me fucking killed, dude. Yeah, yeah. Like, no no, thank you. Um, Can we also just briefly mention that in that documentary, they have, they are, there's a picture of NWA with matching Isuzu troopers. They have three matching Isuzu station wagons. I did not notice that. Yes. That's pretty dope. That's very late 80s. (laughs) NWA biographer, who I mentioned earlier, Garrett Kennedy, described the creation of Fuck the Police a tiny bit differently. Okay. One day at Dre's apartment, Cube brought up an idea for a chorus. After hearing the words Fuck the Police, Dre skims the lyrics and passes. What else you got? Dre asks Cube, initially dismissing the song because it isn't something you can drink and party to. Dre's attitudes about the song changed when he and Easy got busted by some cops for shooting paintballs at people and the officers put guns to their heads. Cube initially wanted Fuck the Police to be a solo number, but both Dre and Ren believed it should include the whole group, and so they all gathered with pen and paper to flesh out the song with lyrics inspired by old-time radio courtroom dramas. Oh, fun. Dre surveyed the milk crates housing his stacked record collection and started pulling out records. The beats Dre was producing for NWA varied differently. 
than what he did with the Wrecking Crew. No more dancey techno. Soul and funk samples collided with sirens and gunshots. He wanted to craft productions that sounded as dark and ominous as the streets often felt. Dre built around James Brown's Funky President, People It's Bad, and Funky Drummer. Both are some of the most sampled rhythmic beats in hip-hop. Marbo Whitney's It's My Thing, Roy Ayer's Boogie Back, and Fancy's Feel Good. The beat was aggressive, ferocious, and in your face, and when paired with the words Cuban Wren penned, Fuck the Police was a fire starter that played like an episode of a juicy primetime drama. The scene is an easy one to imagine playing out. So I sent that to you. So you're going to read the action. Okay. Interior, Compton Courthouse, room 603, afternoon. This is this is uh, formatted pretty well for being in an email. I mean, I'll, I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> interior, Compton Courthouse, room 603, afternoon. We track backwards through a wood-paneled courtroom to reveal a jury box filled with young black and Latino men. The gallery is split. On one side, there are two rows of red-faced and seething police officers of varying races, and on the other, black and Latino men, some of whom antagonize the officers by throwing up gang signs. A few even cradle old English bottles in their hands. Next to the jury box, a panel of lawyers are hastily scribbling on yellow legal pads at one table. They are huddled around a white police officer, voiced by the DOC, seated at the opposing table. DJ Yella, MC Ren, Arabian Prince, Ice Cube, and Easy E are all dressed in suits, sunglasses, and ball caps. The entire room stands as Dr. Dre, dressed in a black silk robe, enters and sits at the bench. The scene concludes with Judge Dre finding the white cop guilty of his crime of being a redneck, white bread, chicken shit motherfucker. DOC voicing the offending cop shouts movie-worthy dramatics. I want justice. Fuck you, you black motherfuckers. So, so it was DOC. It was DOC. And doing his white white person voice. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of white person voice, I want to mention um, Sorry to Bother You and Boots Riley. Uh, Boots Riley has an interesting story in The Moth. Uh, about getting pulled over when he had a gun in his car. I love the moth. Yeah, the moth is great. His his is really incredible. He was in like a a, a large band and got pulled over and there was a gun in his glove box and he was very afraid he was going to die. Um, yeah, so. Check that out. Check it out. Wait, wait, wait. So in the lyrics, he says that... Ice Cube says that they're messing with him because he's a teenager, right? How old were they when they recorded this? So Ice Cube, when he first started rapping, uh, was 16. And that was around, by all accounts, 86. And so I'm not exactly 100% sure when he wrote the song because it was before, right? It was before Yeah, it was before they released it, clearly. Came out. So Between 16 and 18. 18. Yeah. So, okay. So, like, literally a juvenile. And yeah. and getting fucked, and like it also makes more sense that he's like playing around with paintball guns when you remember that he's they're teenagers, mo- yeah, they're teenagers, like, yeah, yeah, really young. Um, was he the oldest? The young, like, was he, was that indicative of the rest of the group or? I think the rest of the guys were about five years older than him. In fact, there's a scene in Straight Outta Compton, the film, when he's on the bus from coming home from school and um, gang members come onto the bus because the like little teenagers are like throwing up gang signs out the window. Then uh, Cube goes and meets up with some of the other guys and you can tell that they're older than him. They're not in, in high school, but he is. So we're going to take a quick break, and then after the break, we're going to talk about the release of Fuck the Police, its cultural implications, its implications with law enforcement, and an interesting letter from the FBI. And we're going to do a new segment, a speed round, where we look into what day Ice Cube's 
It was a good day. Actually was. Stick around. I was going to do a mini lyrics for lunch about today was a good day. Okay, do it. It'll take less than a minute. So today was a good day is is another Ice Cube song. And someone on the internet figured out what day he's referring to. And so it's on Ice Cube's album, The Predator. Someone figured out the actual date. This is all things interesting. The video of the day. It was January 20th. 1992 was the the day in question. Of, Why was it a good day? There's a long evidence breakdown that we can do, but the Lakers beat the Supersonics, which happened only a handful of times, and Yo! MTV Raps. He talks about watching Yo! MTV Raps, which started in 88, so it's got to take place between 88 and 93, and the Lakers only beat the Sonics a few times between those dates. The last time was January 20th, 1992, Clue number four, there was no smog. So no smog. That, Love it. So that, that limits the amount of days to f- down to four. So November 30th, 88, April 4th, 89, January 18th, 91, and January 20th, 92. Clue number five got a beep from Kim, and she can fuck all night. So beepers weren't adopted by mobile phone companies until the 90s. So that cuts out the la- the first two 80s things. Clue number six, Ice Cube starred in the film Boys in the yeah. Hood that released in the summer of 91, but was filming to mid in mid-late 90 and early 91. So he was busy on set filming on January 18th, 1991. Too busy to be lounging around the streets with no plan. And so the only day that Ice Cube had off, the Lakers beat the Sonics, beepers were commercially available. It was a clear smogless day. And Yo MTV Raps was on the air. It was January 20th, 1992. And now we return to your regularly scheduled program. The song prompted the FBI to send the group a letter. Okay. A letter. Okay. An FBI letter, which you can encouraged on. encouraged them to kill themselves. Oh my God, Aviv. That's what they did to Martin Luther King. That's fucked up. I, I mean, I know. Some fucked up shit. I didn't fucking do it. I'm not in the FBI. Or am I? This is, all a, this is all a psyop. Oh my God, I'm scared. Okay, so do you want to read the letter? Yes, I definitely want to read the, the FBI letter. So uh, this is from August 1st, 1989 from the U.S. Department of Justice Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's to Mr. Gui Mangianello. Who the fuck is... So he was the promotions director of Priority Records. Priority Records distributed straight out of Compton. Gotcha. So being released and being distributed is two different things that we can talk about at a later date. But yes. Um, So it's not even to any of the members of NWA. They're smarter than that. They're going to the distributor. Right. And this is from Milt Alrich. Oh, come on. His name is Alrich. That's a little on the nose guy. good. So, dear Mr. Manginella, a song recorded by the rap group NWA on their album entitled Straight Outta Compton encourages violence against and disrespect for the law enforcement officer and has been brought to my attention. I understand your company recorded and distributed this album. I am writing to share my thoughts and concerns with you. Advocating violence and assault is wrong. And we, in the law enforcement community, take exception to such actions. Violent crime is a major problem in our country. Reached an unprecedented high in 1988. 78 law enforcement officers were feloniously slain in the line of duty during 1988. Four more than in 1987. 
The law enforcement officers dedicate their lives to the protection of our citizens, and recordings such as the one from NWA are both discouraging and degrading to these brave, dedicated officers. Music plays a significant role in society, and I wanted you to be aware of the FBI's position relative to this song and its message. I believe my views reflect the opinion of the entire law enforcement community. Sincerely yours, Milt Ulrich. Assistant Director, the FBI Office of Public Affairs. Thoughts? Wow. The meaty clackers on this guy. <laughs> Why would you say that? S- okay, so no one is saying that being a police officer is not a dangerous job. 100%. It is, in fact, not the most dangerous job, which is being a logger, I think. Um, it is the 14th most dangerous job, which is still a dangerous job. And the people that are police officers that are actually trying to make society better are help- helpful and kind of few and far between or too few and far between because any bad cop is too many bad cops. But like... The idea that him saying that 78 law enforcement officers were slain in the line of duty in 88, which is a rise, 5% or so rise from 1987, is like, okay, but like across the country, but like how many black people are killed by police officers or just by like inadequate access to Systemic social oppression. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. I I don't I I can I can look it up real quick, but I'm get I'm guessing it's more than 78 and like the fact that he is both saying that we're like a strong we're a strong mighty police force that you whose feelings you hurt with your poem like come on guy, Milt. Milt. Carter's your name's fucking Milt. Fuck you, Milt. <laughs> So yeah, it's a very that. interesting. It's a very interesting letter from like someone with a lot of power, uh, really mad that someone without any power got a little tiny bit of it. Yeah, or, or and, got a and, platform for the and, message. And, and but it's also it's like it's it's just a it's it's yes. So there's that, but it's also the direction that he took, which is like you've really hurt all of our feelings, and I want and I want you to think long and hard about what you've done. And do you think, you know, the album came out in 88, so was he trying to say that, you know, we saw this uptick and yes, we that think is it's the because connection. of you? A hundred percent, that's the connection that he's drawing is like, it doesn't even say kill the police. It just says fuck, I mean, it says kill the police like at one point, but the song isn't called kill the police. Oh, well, he said take him out, which, you know. Yeah, it could be to a nice yeah. steak dinner. Um, <laughs> are you familiar with this, the, the FBI letter to MLK? I am not, and that's really embarrassing. Okay, so let me, I, I just want to read it as a, as a comparison yeah. to what Milt has said. Let me have right? it. So this is an, an unredacted copy of the suicide letter sent to Martin Luther King Jr. in 1964. King, in view it of your- It just says King? Mm-hmm. In view of your Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. No, it just says King. Under, underlined. In view of your low-grade, abnormal personal behavior, I will not dignify your name with either a mister or a reverend or a doctor. Oh, my God. And your last name. Wait, did he really say that or are you saying that? Yeah, I'm reading it to you. I thought you were in response to me saying, like, just king? This is is for real. Oh, my God. 
it is t- probably three times as long as as the as the hurt Fifi's letter. And your last name calls to mind only the type of king such as King Henry VIII and his countless acts of adultery and immoral conduct lower than that of a beast. King, look into your heart. You know you are a complete fraud and a great liability to all of quote, us Negroes, end quote. White people in this country have enough frauds of their own, but I am sure they do not have one at this time that is anywhere near your equal. You are no clergyman and you know it. I repeat, they're missing commas everywhere. I repeat, you are a colossal fraud and an evil, vicious one at that. You could not believe in God and act as you do. Clearly, you don't believe in any personal moral principles. King, like all frauds, your end is approaching. You could have been our greatest leader. You, even at an early age, have turned out not to be a leader, but to be a dissolute abnormal moral imbecile we will now have to depend on our older leaders like wilkins a man of character and thank god we have others like him but you are done your quote honorary degrees your nobel prize what a grim farce and other awards will not save you king i repeat you are done no person can overcome facts not even a fraud like yourself lend your sexually psychotic ear to the enclosure you will find yourself in all your dirt filth evil and moronic talk exposed on the record for all time i repeat no person can argue successfully against facts you are finished you will find on the record for all time your filthy dirty evil companions males and females giving expressions with your hideous abnormalities and some of them to pretend to be ministers of the gospel abnormalities Satan could not do more. What incredible evilness. It is all there on the record. Your sexual orgies. Listen to yourself, you filthy, abnormal animal. You are on the record. You have been on the record. All your adulterous acts, your sexual orgies extending far into the past, this one is but a tiny sample. You will understand this. Yes, from your various evil playmates on the East Coast to Redacted and others on the West Coast and outside the country. You are on record. King, you are done. The American public, the church organizations that you have been helping the protestants catholics and jews will know you for what you are an evil abnormal beast so will others who have backed you you are done king there is only one thing left for you to do you know what that is you have just 34 days in which to do parentheses this exact number has been selected for a specific reason it has definite practical significance you are done there is but one way out for you you better take it before your filthy abnormal fraudulent self is bared to the nation what the fuck signed who no sign no signature okay so how do we know this is from fbi it was a blackmail package it was an anonymous letter and it was later revealed that it was packaged by the FBI and it was part of the COINTEL pro op- operation against Dr. King and against the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover was behind it, of course, because he was sociopath. Po- yeah, possibly the worst person ever. And so in 71, a this was from 1964, so 25 years before the Hurt Fifi's letter, which is what I will be referring to it as from now on. The NWA letter, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, in March of 71, an activist group called the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI 
burglarized a local FBI office in Pennsylvania, close to where I grew up, and stole classified documents. And part of those documents revealed COINTELPRO. And they were sent to the newspapers and members of Congress. And in 75, a copy of the suicide letter was discovered in the work files of the deputy director, William Sullivan. And he has been suggested as the person who wrote the letter. Wow. Well, you're right. That was a lot more disturbing than NWA letter. But let's talk about how the FBI's feelings were hurt. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, like, you know, I think that there are probably good faith arguments to not expose children to violent music, right? Yeah. I actually have a whole chapter about this in my book uh, that I'm working on, which is about patriarchal microaggressions and, and how they affect women and girls throughout a lifetime. An entire chapter is devoted to pop music because the... The attitudes yeah. towards women that are in pop music, kids are sponging them up and they absolutely affect how they think about things. Uh, they, th- they affected how I thought about myself, you know, how I thought about sex and what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. I agree that there's absolutely something to that. You know, um, kids are going to idolize the music and it's if it doesn't change the way they act, it's definitely going to change the way they think and what they think is normal, what they think is cool. But this, but this argument from the FBI that we're we're hurting their feelings and we're and we're worried about their safety now because of this song, is the the worst in bad faith argument. One of the worst in bad faith arguments that I've ever heard in my life. Right, the right. same organization that writes, "Dear Doctor King, you're you immoral beast, kill yourself." Not even dear doctor. Oh, just <laughs> King. Right. So you know, fuck you, Milt. So NWA um, wasn't really upset about the letter, to be honest. Uh, Cube said that it let us know that we are more than a group or a political statement, and it knocked us into that position. Any press is good press. Mm -hmm. So there was an incident in 1989 in Detroit involving a performance of Fuck the Police that was dramatized in the 2015 film Straight Outta Compton. Do you remember that? No. What happened? Well, I've seen a lot of music biopics (laughs) in the movie. Police officers start like holding up their badges and bum rushing the stage. And then there's gunshots and then they run backstage and they they exit the building and then they're flanked by police officers thrown in a paddy wagon, arrested. And then the next scene is them giving a press conference. Uh huh. But that's not exactly how it happened. So there's a 2020 GQ article called The True Story of NWA Playing Fuck the Police Live in Detroit. This is me talking right before they go on stage in the film. The group is warned by police backstage that they are not to play the song. And their manager, Jerry Heller, looks rip shit about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this is GQ. While the film strongly suggests that somehow officers had the authority to tell hip-hop groups what they could and couldn't say or play on stage, that's not quite the case. In fact, the restriction came from NWA's inner circle. The late Eazy-E's manager, Jerry Heller, agreed in pre-tour negotiations with Daryl Brooks, the tour's promoter, that the band would be fined $25,000 if it played the song. Why? Brooks, Heller, and the band's agent, Jerry Aide, feared the song was not going to be palatable to conservative localities. When you go into the Bible Belt to the Midwest, they don't allow sexual gyrating postures on stage, Brooke recalls. I don't think, I think that he's misunderstanding what he means when Ice Cube says, fuck the police. Right. Like, not literally, like, hump the police. <laughs> um, in, wow. In his, yeah, so 
Okay, it is 2006 autobiography Ruthless, the late Heller, Jerry Heller, explained how the police came to enforce the contract. That's what they do. They enforce contracts. <laughs> Insurance carriers required police security as a condition of issuing a policy. No police, no policy. No policy, no concert. So Detroit police threatened to boycott those fuck the police motherfuckers NWA. As you can tell, it didn't end well with NWA and Jerry. <laughs> yes. If Paul Giamatti is managing you in a movie, you're about to get fucked. Right? Like gyrating Uh, kind of fucked. Like gyrating kind of fucked. Um, In the film, Ice Cube gives a stirring speech to introduce the song. This is NWA. We do what the fuck we want to do. And we say what the fuck we want to say. And he leads the 20,000 some fans in a middle finger salute before gunshots ring out. In real life, according to people at the show, all it took to start the song was a brief flash of eye contact between Cube and Dre on stage. And those gunshots from the crowd weren't really gunshots. All of a sudden, you hear, bap, 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 guys are running and guys are trying to storm the stage. And of course, our security guys are fighting the guys who'd stormed the stage, recalls Atron Gregory. So Atron Gregory is the tour's manager at the time, and he's, this is his quote. Turns out it was the cops, and they had lit off some cherry bombs to create chaos. Oh, so weird. <laughs> what? Like the cop, they would never like, do that. Like the cops dropping off pallets of bricks to the George Floyd protests over the summer. It's called an attractive nuisance. Oh, is that what they call it? That's the term is attractive nuisance. Yeah. That's cute. Although he wasn't present in Detroit, Sir Jenks, a producer who also performed with the group, says police had an agenda to intimidate NWA's mostly young African-American fans. They were just being bullies, he says. It was a sh- it was a show to the audience that they were in control. Every police officer in the building starts rushing the stage out of nowhere. It looked like Battle of the Bulge. It seems coordinated, right? Seems like they would have done it. This was like a tactical plan. Right. Right. This is not some spontaneous thing as a reaction to what nwa did seems like the the train was leaving the station no matter what it does seem that way yeah according to straight out of compton plainclothes police gradually made their way to the side of the stage during the performance where they looked on menacingly in real life gregory recalls nwa had its own security guards posted on the sides of the stage and once the police arrived the two sides began to tussle the movie got one key detail right according to people who were there when the group heard the bap 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 they panicked and fled For that 15 or 20 minutes, it was white hot, Brooke says. You can imagine guys running off stage and plainclothes guys running from the venue on the floor trying to get over the barrier to catch these guys who were saying, fuck the police. In Gregory's account, NWA, after running from the stage, removed their hats and reversed their jackets to hide logos and be more anonymous. They boarded a limousine to the hotel a mile or two away, and everybody else in the group's entourage walked unassumingly past the police who were on horseback. (laughs) That's like the the weird, the stereotype of white people is that they cannot tell black people apart. And so they're like using that as using racism to their advantage, where they like turn their cap around and they're like, who's this guy? Who are you? (laughs) Yeah, that's fucked up. MC Ren's recollection is a little different. Me and Dre were together. We ran backstage. We ran out the door. And once we looked out, it was like, all right. And we turned around and went back in the building. Everybody was like back into the dressing room. The police were in there trying to give citations, some bullshit like that. DJ Yella wound up alone in the street. We went all different ways. I ran into the parking lot, he says. I walked back to the hotel. DJ Speed left with Easy e and Easy security guard Big Ron. Big Ron. Big Ron. The cops first wound up backstage where they tussled with the first rappers they could find in Lindsay Lohan Cool J's dressing room. 
friend friend of the show. Hello, <laughs> Cool J. Also on the bill that night, De La Soul, Too Short, and Slick Rick. So LL's bodyguards are fighting the police, Gregory recalls. The scene was so stressful that Brooks, the promoter, felt a spike in blood pressure and asked a runner to take him to the emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love the, that there's like some fucking nebbishy guy in the corner being like, oh no, my agita. And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, so he he was fine, and he later returned to the show, which still had two acts left. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so afterward, Gregory returned to the hotel. He handed NWA's production manager a briefcase full of cash from the show, as well as all the plane tickets back to L.A. He called the bus driver to check on the two cases full of guns the group carried on the road. They tried to drive the buses into Canada just in case something happened, but police arrived shortly after that. Gregory called a cab for the airport, ending up at another hotel two blocks away. He contacted Eze via walkie-talkie, who verified everything was okay. This sounds like an insurgency. This sounds like literally there's like a collapse of government. Like, right. maybe we'll go to Canada. We're, <laughs> all, we're at this hotel. No, we're at this hotel. I know. We have walkie-talkies. <laughs> Police chatted amiably with the band about the Detroit Pistons and sports. Ice Cube once told an interviewer that they corralled us, arrested us all, and all they wanted was damn autographs for their daughters and sons. Fucking of course. <laughs> Fucking God damn it. But this also is like an indication of their celebrity, right? So they're getting so big that now it's impossible for the cops to like put them in the back of a car and beat them because they have this huge platform, right? Right. So, like, just like Elvis was arrested for drug use and Willie Nelson and Prince and fucking everybody else, it seems like they're getting so famous that the cops would, the, the cops in question would be satisfied to beat up their fans rather than them. Mm. This is what's happening in the show, right? The cops are, the plainclothes officers are chasing the fans, right. anyone who threw up their middle finger into the crowd, as opposed to actually trying to beat up Ice Cube and 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 that crew, which like is a drastic change from a couple years previous. Right. Yeah. Because it, it would attract too much media attention and. They don't want that. They don't want that. So. After the fuck the police scene in the movie Straight Out of Compton, the next thing we see is NWA giving a press conference. Now, NWA did give a press conference in 1991, so a few years later in Hyde Park, London. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find a single news article or a transcript from that, but I did find a photo, which I'll put on our Instagram when this episode goes live. And and this is what the inspired the press conference in the movie? Yes, okay. exactly. I did find this Arsenio Hall interview that the group did a few years later after Ice Cube had left the group over contract and money disputes. Okay. So let's watch this now. Everything about the four young men I'm about to uh, introduce you to is controversial from the name to the music, which last year the FBI accused of encouraging violence against the police. Before they perform for us, let's welcome and talk to NWA. Give it up. <laughs> I mentioned the controversy with the FBI, and of course we know about the controversy with the police. I'm sure you all have read. How did it all begin? Um, when the song we made about the police, you know, a couple of years ago, quite sure everybody's aware of that. Yeah, it, it was. It was. Uh, we can use the initial of the first word. F. 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 The police. Yeah. 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 You know. And, 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 and like what? 
One thing everybody likes a round of applause. They get harassed by the police for no reason. <laughs> and everybody wants to say it, you know, but they can't say it on the spot because something happened to them, you know. And in, in the ghetto or in a black community, you get harassed by the police just because what you wear. And uh, nine times out of ten, you can't help but what you got on because that's all your family can afford you to wear. But they, you know, stereotype you as a gang member. So Why that's not? how it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Now, so you're not saying that all police are bad? Nah. Yeah. Not all police. 90% or more. Yeah. It's 10%. It's 10% that's good, but that 90% just give you that edge to that 10%. When you see them, you just click, you know? Right so up. we did it on the records. That's how we're getting back at them for getting back at us for all them years. We couldn't do nothing. Yeah. Because it's a million times, you know, I used to get harassed in front of my house. My mother come out, and she, um, like, ask them what's going on. And they tell her to shut up or something and stay out of it, you know? And I ain't got that right to do that. You know, they just like me. If they didn't have that gun, it'd be, you know? I think you know, I, I think it's more than more than ten percent. Though there might be. It's, I ain't saw where I came from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where, I, where, where I come oh, from. Oh, Arsenio, like, trying to make people happy. It's okay. interesting how prescient they are about basic or not prescient because it's it happened then, it happened before then, and it's happening now. That it's just peace speaking of the systemic oppression of black people in lower income areas that get harassed by the police for seemingly no reason and he thinks maybe 10 percent of cops are good uh nothing has changed <laughs> exactly which yeah. is where i was going next um on june 9th 2020 rolling stone reported that 32 years after its release streams of fuck the police were surging again as the nation protested the may 25th murder of george floyd by minneapolis police jesus fucking christ so 15 days after that fuck the police had experienced a 272% uptick in on-demand streams <laughs> across all platforms. Okay. And Pandora reported a nearly 550% increase in people building personal stations around the song. That's so weird. The, the corporatization of a movement. We're like we're like a couple days away from like all companies pretending to care about gay rights because it's going to be Pride Month. But like the corporatization of a movement like that where Spotify's like, we're with you. We created fuck the police radio i think is like a little squicky but the numbers don't lie I agree with you by july fuck the police had had 157 million plays on spotify oh man um and this isn't the first time this has happened streams of fuck the police surged in late 2014 and early 2015 according to alpha data why what happened then the analytics provider that powers the rolling stone charts as people protested and mourned the deaths of many unarmed black men who had died from the actions of policemen, including Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Eric Garner in Staten Island, and Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And this was the, the, the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement, at least on a national stage. Right. So when Black Lives Matter held a vigil to honor Brown on the one-year anniversary of his death, streams of the song had increased nearly 44 times from the week of his death. The track experienced another surge in January 2016 when Black Lives Matter held a march in San Francisco ahead of Super Bowl 50. Streams of the song have continued to ebb and flow in the months since then as stories of police brutality became national news. This is from Rolling Stone. When considering the longevity of Fuck the Police, Ren says it means as much to him now as it did three decades ago. It's still the same message, he says. It's the same thing, and it's going to have the same message after I'm gone. Over the years, Ice Cube has echoed Ren's viewpoint. That song is still in the same place before it was made, the rapper said in 2015. It's our legacy here in America with the police department and any kind of authority figures that have to deal with us on a day-to-day -day basis. There's usually abuse and violence connected to that interaction. 
So when Fuck the Police was made in 1988, it was 400 years in the making, and it's still just as relevant as it was before it was made. Yep. This is a quote from Wren. It seems like all throughout junior high school, high school, police would just fuck with you for no reason. It was like, if you black, you young, you in the hood, you in the ghettos of America, you just get fucked with. What you hear on the record is all the frustration, all the times getting harassed, getting pulled over for no reason at all, getting disrespected, having them try to disrespect your parents, all because of your skin color. All of that builds up and you make a record. But we never thought the record would be around today with people still playing the record and into it. But shit, to me, it's a perfect protest song. Wow. I said at the beginning, it's sadly still as relevant today. Do we think that the situation with the police has gotten better or worse since 1988? I I don't know. I think maybe it's the same, but we just have more access to all of our cameras and the internet and and kind of the information is more democratized. There's the constant refrain after Derek Chauvin was found guilty that the young woman who filmed the, the murder is the only reason that this guilty verdict even happened. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's, probably the same or maybe slightly worse and the and we're seeing more we can't white america can't ignore it as much as they once did i definitely don't know the answer i wasn't you know right um i think it's absolutely true we, we have more eyes on the problem now yeah but i do think about that incidence with the paintball guns and do i think those men would have survived that incident today yeah exactly i'm going to read from the american bar association This is about racial profiling and racial targeting. Historically, racial targeting by police did not start in the late 20th century. It has constituted a fact of life for African Americans as long as there have been organized police forces in the United States. Indeed, even before that, with the slave patrols of the American antebellum South. But what we think of as racial profiling in a somewhat systemic modern form really took shape in the last two decades in the 20th century, beginning in Florida. In the 1980s, a Florida state trooper named Bob Vogel, engaged in drug interdiction along the state's highways, began to put together a list of factors that, he said, kept coming up in all of his biggest and most important drug busts. Never mind that the lists were by nature incomplete and selective. They only included instances in which the trooper had stopped the drivers and found drugs, not ones in which the effort had been unsuccessful. The tactic made Vogel somewhat of a celebrity. He was interviewed on network television news shows, and he won election as sheriff of Volusia County, Florida. The DEA took notice and created its own system of factors, systematizing them into profiles. This all resulted in an effort that brought the federal government into the effort in a big way, Operation Pipeline. This program, which began in 1986, used millions of dollars in federal funding to train police from all over the country in the fine points of profiling. Those officers would then return to their own departments, ready to train others and set up interdiction units. So, so all of racial profiling and and kind of the 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 word pipeline, right? The black person to gang to drug runner pipeline comes from this one jamoker in Florida and his juked stats is like his racist accounts of pulling over people and they're like Mm -hmm. well all these drugs must be from black people then and then the entire the entire nation is like that sounds about right right the dea denies that it made racial or ethnic appearance a factor in any of its training but the evidence says otherwise and the proof as they say was in the pudding well it's built on the foundation of that 
Once pipeline tactics made it into the training and tactics of police forces around the country, police targeting of black drivers became systemic and common. Okay, so flash forward to the beginning of 2019, marked 22 years since the introduction of the first piece of proposed legislation on racial profiling. This was the Traffic Stop Statistic Act of 1997, H.R. 118, passed unanimously by the U.S. House of Representatives in March of 1998. This bill constituted the first attempt by any legislative body to come to grips with what had become known as racial profiling, the police practice of stopping black and brown drivers in disproportionate numbers for traffic infractions in attempts to investigate other crimes for which the police had no evidence. The tactic used to target drug interdiction evidence on highways and interstates across the country as we know, had it existed for years, but it come to wider public knowledge in the early and middle 1990s with the filings of legal actions against certain state police forces. So so to answer your question from before, it has gotten worse because this, this drug interdiction guy was in the mid to late 80s and we're, they're singing fuck the police in 1988. So like it, the racial profiling has only been more systematized since then. 100%. Fuck. So this bill would have provided the collection of several categories of data on each traffic stop, including the race of the driver and whether and why a search was performed. The attorney general would have then summarized the data in the first nationwide statistically rigorous study of these practices. The idea behind the bill was that if the study confirmed what people of color had been experiencing for years, it would put to rest once and for all the idea that African-Americans who have been stopped for driving while black are exaggerating isolated anecdotes into oh a social yes problem. they're exaggerating it well this bill was to prove that wrong that they're not exaggerating right. it but but the idea that that was even a thing is ma- it makes me like furious well yeah but again when we talk about oppressive systems the people the oppressors are never gonna validate the experience of the oppressed that's true i guess so if this bill had passed congress and other bodies might then begin to take concrete steps to channel police discretion more appropriately. But once the bill passed (laughs) in the House, law enforcement organizations, which had previously taken no notice of the bill, announced their opposition to it. Mm. And the bill never advanced to the Senate, and it did not pass. It didn't even advance to the Senate. (laughs) Right. It passed the House, and then they're just like, whoops, we lost it. Yeah. That said, the act had a wider effect. Multiple states passed anti-racial profiling legislation over the next several years, and a more comprehensive bill, the End Racial Profiling Act, was introduced in every successive Congress over the decade. In the arena of public discussion, the first bill's passage by the House changed the debate, bringing the issue of racial profiling front and center for the first time. It surfaced in the 2000 presidential election debates, and even in the first speech to Congress given by President George W. Bush, in which he what? vowed that his administration would end the practice once and for all. Uh, and he did, and there's no more racism. The end. <laughs> the end. We'll see you next week, everyone. <laughs> As we know, this did not happen. Racial profiling did not end with the Bush administration. In fact, it intensified, even while it changed shape and took on new targets. Mm-hmm. What other targets? Terrorists, brown people. Quote unquote, Pe- yeah. Quote unquote, of course. Um, everything that I'm saying. I don't believe, okay, back, I'm back that up. <laughs> um, yes, the racial profiling of Muslims, people from the Middle East. Even South Asians get like kind of roped in there for, because right. Americans are dumb and can't tell the difference. Today, you know, we have all of this argument against quote unquote illegal immigration. So mm. racial profiling continues to be rampant and even far farther reaching. 
I mean, yeah, there's a whole news organization dedicated to the proliferation of there's a migrant caravan coming for you and your family and your jobs. Um, This is from the peer-reviewed international science journal Nature. Okay. About 1,000 civilians are killed each year by law enforcement officers in the United States. By one estimate, black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police during their lifetime. And in another study, black people who are fatally shot by police seem to be twice as likely as white people to be unarmed. Data from California shows that police stopped and used force against black people disproportionately compared with other racial groups in 2018. A December 2019 paper reported that bias in police administrative records results in many studies underestimating levels of racial bias in policing or even masking discrimination entirely. Based on information from more than 2 million 911 calls in two U.S. cities, researchers concluded that white officers dispatched to black neighborhoods fired their guns five times as often as black officers dispatched for similar calls to the same neighborhoods. Great. So I sent you um, the answering the call. Yes. So it says researchers looked at 1.2 million 911 emergency calls in a U.S. city and plotted the use of the force involving a gun across neighborhoods according to their racial composition. White officers were more likely to use a gun than were black officers and more likely to do so in predominantly black neighborhoods. So, so this is an interesting thing. Two things. It's like a Venn diagram. White officers are more likely to fire their guns than officers of color and all officers but especially white officers are more likely to fire their guns in black neighborhoods right that is what it says because you can see the line of black officers on the graph we're looking at a graph listeners yeah there's a graph the x-axis is percentage of black residents in a neighborhood from zero percent to 100 percent, and the y-axis is percentage of calls in which police used force involving a gun and so the weirdly the black officers which is in blue kind of goes up slightly on the x-axis so in white neighborhoods they are kind of four percent likely and in black neighborhoods they're like five percent or a little bit over five percent likely um white officers on the other hand are somehow zero percent likely to use their use force involving a gun in all white neighborhoods and go up to 15 or even higher 25 percent in in all black neighborhoods which is really really a abysmal statistics here and i'll put this graph um also on our instagram account when this episode drops so make sure you follow us on instagram if you want to see all of the visuals that we reference in the show if you want to throw up yes if you want to be extremely upset and angry and so and so the other thing is also true which is that this like 2.5 times more likely to be shot unarmed by a police officer this is like a often kind of mis disputed statistic because people don't know how statistics work because there are more white people in the United States than black people more white people just like in general are killed by police officers than black people but as a percentage of their total population, black people it's are 2.5. It's completely disproportionate. And also, white people should not be shot by the cops either. A hundred percent. I'm so glad you brought both of these things up because I'm so sick of hearing the argument of like, well, actually, more white people get killed by cops per year. And it's like, okay, does that well, mean it's good? It's It doesn't mean it's good, but it's also a disproportionate. It's bad statistics. It's bad math. Number of the population. Yeah. Okay. As a former math teacher, I am offended by your bad math, everyone. Thank you. I'm going to finish up this episode by reading from the Garrick Kennedy 
biography of NWA. Ice Cube once said the music took off because it was a moment in time, bottled up and shaken until it burst. It's no surprise then that the group's most insidious track, Fuck the Police, became a rallying cry in LA after a group of white police officers were acquitted in the savage beating of unarmed black motorist Rodney King. Those three words became a mantra, shouted and painted on walls by those... It's okay. Those three words became a mantra, shouted and painted on walls by those who pilfered and torched the city in the days after the acquittal in what remains one of the deadliest, most destructive uprisings in American history. More than a quarter of a century before the Black Lives Matter movement and a new generation of youth turned to social media activism as a means of protest against police brutality, NWA were screaming, fuck the police. Their lyrics were purposely confrontational. They shouted furiously to push back against racial profiling and offered insight into the daily turmoil of inner-city youth through visceral storytelling. But they just as well promoted misogyny, homophobia, and sexual violence without abandon. We had lyrics. That's what we used to combat all the forces that were pushing us from all angles, whether it was money, gangbanging, crack, LAPD, Cube said. Everything in the world came after this group. NWA was the world's most dangerous group. We changed pop culture on all levels, not just music. We changed it on TV, in movies, on radio, everything. Everybody could be themselves. Before NWA, you had to pretend to be a good guy. NWA shocked middle America, scared the government, and sparked conflict with law enforcement. Although their run together was short, NWA's music encouraged a generation of young black MCs to explore their rawest thoughts, no matter how obscene or radical. Today, hip-hop is seen far differently than it was during NWA's rise. Hip-hop is credited as the single most influential genre in American pop music over the last half century, as its artists have long gone from persona non grata to pop stars, corporate pitchmen, actors, fashion designers, tech moguls, and executives. And it wouldn't have happened if a group of men from Compton and South Central didn't light the fire. It's giving a, a voice to the voiceless that has become the mainstream, right? That mm-hmm. hip hop is the is the main type of popular music at this point, and yet as white America is adopting and co opting the music, they are sometimes conveniently leaving out the message. And whether you want to call it a cultural appropriation or white supremacy or whatever you want to call it it's there's this thing where we're like yeah i love fuck the police and then they're still they're not like working to make change right yeah you see it a lot with with republicans who are huge rage against the machine fans like who do you think that doesn't make sense yeah what do you who what and so yeah, I think that we have to be kind of responsible digesters just just the way we can't idolize someone who makes music we like and and ignore everything else that they're saying or doing. We also can't just take the music and not ingrain the societal message that inspired it, right? Like like just go back to listening to the Fat Boys then. You know, is this the same as putting up a black square on Instagram? Kind of. I mean, kind of. So, so I'm talking about a specific group of people, right? And it's it, it's the members of white America who are taking the all the things about hip hop they like and ignoring all the things about hip hop that make them question who they are and where they came from right, and make or them a feel little uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so, this might be the black square thing, or it's as helpful to the cause as the black square thing, which is absolutely not helpful. But I also have to believe that some people 
we're introduced to the struggle by this band and by the song and songs like it. I'm sure when but when we were babies, some people absolutely were. And so I'm hoping that that has long-reaching effects as opposed to people who just find it pleasant and go about their privileged lives. And if you out in listener land have always kind of enjoyed the song but never really gave it much thought like to what it what the message was behind it that maybe like take some time to think about all of the things that had to happen in Ice Cube's life and in all of their lives for them to want to sit down and risk their own lives and their own safety to put out a song like that right cuz they knew yeah. at some they knew on some level that they were they could be taking their life i mean Dre knew right Dre didn't want to do the song cuz he would have gotten right. fucked up so right. like they all knew that they were putting their safety at risk to do this song and to just like throw it on a Pandora playlist because you want to pretend like you are doing something raging is, against the machine like you're, that you're raging against the machine is is doing them a disservice and that's why we make this show so you can think about these things and that's literally why we make this show yeah and it's and it's uh, truly you know making me think of the, these things i like knew kind of the broad strokes of this song but didn't really know the nitty-gritty and it's you know militarized me even more for social justice and uh, so i think you know i want to thank you specifically for wanting to do this song and educating me oh yeah well whatever shut up <laughs> emotion emotion <laughs> how do we want to go out this week i th- i think on fuck the police maybe is there a cool cover of fuck the police that i'll just find a cool cover of fuck the police okay. I, I, is there a white girl ukulele cover of Fuck the Police? <laughs> yes, please. The Wailing Jennies on Fuck the Police. And join us next time. We will be talking about who? Basically, the female Great Gatsby. <laughs> yes, we'll see if Lindsay can make it through that episode without crying. <laughs> can Lindsay make it through any episodes without crying? Who's to say? Um, <laughs> so please... Uh, Find us on the internet. We're at where? We are at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. We are on the interwebs at lyricsforlunch.com. You can go there if you want to support the show. If people want to send us long, weird messages about doing cocaine with John Popper, where would they do that? Uh, they can do that. DM us or email us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. And rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Specifically, Apple Music is a big one for how podcasts get seen. Subscribe, like, interact with us. We're nice people, we promise. Um, and until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying? Stay vigilant. I was going to say fuck the police. <laughs> I'm a young brother on a
Oh, 